0: Uh, to sing songs like, uh, um, maybe like, it's the most wonderful time of the year, uh, celebrating and stuff. While while, uh, the world is going on with the Christmas uh, season prior to Christmas uh, Christmas proper, the church has traditionally been in a time of quiet self-reflection. It's interesting that precisely the time of year where it's the busiest time, oftentimes the most stressful time of year for our culture, that the church um, has set aside this specific time for quiet and slowing ourselves. There is a contradiction between our way of celebrating this time of year and thinking about how do we enter into the season and the way that the broader world around us has come to appreciate it. But while we uh, appreciate this time of self-examination and preparation for the coming again of Christ, because Advent isn't for preparation for Jesus coming in the manger, it is a preparation for his coming again. While we prepare ourselves by self-examination and reflecting and, and confessing our sin, all of these things, the third Sunday of Advent is called Gaudete Sunday, which is the rose color, that's why we have a, a, a rose-colored candle this time of year, this uh, week during Advent. And Gavdete means rejoicing. So it's kind of like the time of uh, the calendar where it's like we are waiting. We are holding ourselves back. We are not letting ourselves skip ahead to the good stuff. We are, we are, it's kind of slow and quiet. And we don't want to be people who um, don't want to have time to face ourselves or to hear from God in those places that we've neglected as we start this new um, year. But instead, we, during that period, we do want to acknowledge that it, it's just too overwhelming. So there's kind of a little bit of a break in the middle of Advent to say, we are confessing our sins, but that confession is directly connected to rejoicing. It's connected to gratitude. It is a reminder that rejoicing and confession cannot be separated. They are intertwined, they are are connected in a very intricate way. Uh, I love uh, a painting I may have referred to before called, uh, it's by Gruenwald, and it's the Eisenheim Altarpiece. The one particular part of this uh, painting that I love is the, the portion with John the Baptist at the bottom. It's an exaggerated piece where there's a lot of, kind of like fingers of Jesus on the cross are kind of cringing, and, and he's got sores that cover his body. And at the bottom, you see John the Baptist depicted as he is in many kind of medieval pieces of art pointing up to Jesus, and he's kind of cocked to the side, and he's like, that guy right there, him. Like, look at him. I, I love what it represents. It represents exactly what we've read today, that when people pointed at John the Baptist, John the Baptist pointed others to Jesus. And this painting in this chapel of a monastery that was used to treat people with skin diseases, these are people in medieval times who'd been cast out of society because they had open wounds, because they were deformed. And they were sent into this monastery to be tended to by, by these specialized people who lived their lives, set their lives apart to treat people with these conditions. And every morning, the people who had these skin conditions, the wombs, the deformities, would come into the chapel of, of the monastery, and they would open this triptych, and, and they would see in the middle of it, they would kneel before this picture of Christ on the cross with his hands kind of mangled like this, And as they looked up at this painting, they would see that Jesus had open wounds all over his body. You don't see that in other paintings of Jesus. But in the monastery that treated the people with open wounds, Jesus was depicted as one who bore their very wounds. And they would kneel there and they would look at this image of Jesus and they would think, surely this man, this Christ, God, bears our wounds. And so when John the Baptist points at Jesus, he's not just saying, confess to him, confess to him, repent your sins. Instead he's saying, worthy is the Lamb. He is the one who bears our wounds. He is the one who we gaze upon and realize that this is the one who came here and we have no reason to think that he has no idea what you and I experience." in the midst of all that is happening in this crucifixion scene. There's John the Baptist pointing us to Jesus. John the Baptist says that he is unworthy to even untie the sandals of the one who would come after him. This is the, the job reserved for the lowest of the servants. The one who would kneel before the visitor coming into the house. Kneel at the feet of the master coming in after a journey with dusty feet John says I'm not even worthy to do this undo the sandals of the one who would come after me he says repent those who came out to the wilderness to meet him to see this this uh, odd fellow the way of the Lord is repentance repent the new heavens and the new earth that we read of this morning by the prophet Isaiah, it's marked by this, this posture of humility, which is a perfect alignment with the way of the Lord. To pave the way for our world, to pave the world, to pave the way of our families, to pave the way of this culture towards God is to live the way of repentance, the way of humility. This is not a place where repentance is simply giving up our lives, giving up something that we could have had that is somehow better than what we have now. But it is a giving up our lives to the will of God. It is a perfect unity, a harmony, of which Isaiah says, God will rejoice in this, and that we will look back at the Lamb and rejoice in Him. It is a perfect harmony but what does it mean to repent? When I say repent, what comes to mind? There's been a lot of talk around this word repentance recently. Every week in the Agnes Day, this this prayer that goes back to the first couple of centuries in the church, we read, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have you ever noticed that it doesn't say sins? Many of us say sins, but it's, Sin of the world. Sin singular. Like the overarching understanding of sin. This thing that has an overwhelming grip on so many of, 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 of the world and of our lives. This overwhelming force that is opposed to the Lamb of God. In this prayer, we acknowledge the one. Well, when we think about, especially this time of year, our sins and self-reflection, this prayer points us to the one who bears the sin of the world. You know what this indicates? This indicates that Christ already reigns and rules over sin. And while we find ourselves oftentimes focused on our sins as individuals we have to be reminded that the one upon the cross has taken upon himself the weight of sin it's already accomplished and therefore when we repent it's not as if we are on probation hoping to get off the hook for the sins that we bear instead it is the acknowledgement of what Christ is already done in our desire and the will that God has put in our hearts to align ourselves fully with the reality that it has already been taken care of. And that's why we say worthy. Worthy is the lamb. It is with gratitude that we respond. One of my favorite mystics was brought to mind this week. Her name is Julian of Norwich. A medieval mystic She's one of my favorite. I love the mystics because... This thing is crazy. It has a mind of its own. I love the mystics because you can look at their stories and they all have done just crazy things. But one thing they could never be accused of is not loving Jesus. I mean, they love Jesus so much. I love to look at their life. Listen to what Julie Norwich did. She, they built a room into the side of the church with no door, and that's where she lived the remainder of her life. This is called, she's an anchorist, an anchorite. Someone who lived their life attached to the church. There was one window into the church, and there was one window out to the world. Kind of based on the text about wanting to, to, uh, can't imagine to live anywhere else but in the house of the Lord, to dwell there forever. And she took this seriously. This is where she wanted to be. It wasn't a giving up of anything for her. It was, it was a gaining something. And when you think about like her at the end of her life, and the contemplation and the reflection back at the life she would live, you, you might think, man, I wonder if she ever thought of everything that she missed out on. But not her. I think if I read Julian of Norwich right that she would probably think, man, I wish I had more to give. What else could I have given? God, what, what, where, what parts of my heart? What, what parts of my thought? What parts of my hands, my actions? What else could I have given? She's just sort of like, what else? What else? Take it all, take it all. To the point where she lived a life in the room attached to the church with no exit door. Gratitude. This is repentance, not a life that says, what am I giving up to follow Jesus as much as it is to say, what else can I give? It's a posture of gratitude. Gratitude is the same word used throughout much of the text as confession. They're interchangeable. You can't separate them. And so when you're asked to repent of your sins, It is at once calling you to be grateful for the one who has forgiven them already. It's an overflowing. This is what leads John the Baptist to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. And likewise, at the end of Julian's life, she says, don't remember me for who I am, but remember what I said. For Julian, giving up her life was the only visible way to express the gratitude in her heart. But think about the way this changes when repentance is separated from gratitude. I think this is the sort of the struggle that many of us have with repentance. When we somehow think that it is not related to a posture of our heart that is oriented Towards the one who hangs on the cross, who experienced everything that we've experienced, and who's already conquered it, and now reigns over it all. Julian became famous. This is what it means to pave the way. Julia, be, Julian became famous to the point where everyone was coming, and they just wanted to look into that window and to hear her voice. She said that famous, this famous saying. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and in the manner of all things, all shall be well. People come from everywhere to see this one who gave all. It, it is a life of emptying herself so that she might gain Christ. Now, let me, let's acknowledge something. You and I, we don't, have, we don't have anyone living outside here in a room. You're probably never going to live yourself in a room that is walled in With a small window, just you and your cat, like her. You're probably never going to live, well, some of us might live out in the wilderness, but you probably will never survive on a diet of locusts and honey. However, I think it is possible for us all to live a life that proclaims, I can't give enough. That today, on this Gaudete Sunday, that we would rejoice in our ability to give Jesus anything that we have left. All that we have. That we would rejoice in it. That confessing, the repenting of our sins, the emptying of our life is explicitly connected to gratitude. Because this is the way of Jesus that we would bear his sins, that we would bear the wounds of others, that we would share life of harmony with him and with others, that we would live a life of humility as he lived a humble life coming to this world for our sake. This is the way of Jesus. And this is the way we participate in the new heavens and new earth is those who repent not out of duty but also out of joy out of delight and so today on this Sunday this this break in our season of repentance rejoice rejoice at the sight of the Lamb who has taken upon himself our wounds he is worthy he is worthy of, of our praise worthy is the Lamb who sits upon the throne Amen.